Hello, welcome to episode 14 and part four of a multi-episode series on engaging the masses in sustainability. I skipped recording an episode last week. Something really crazy happened in my personal life. A friend of mine in my immediate community where I live was on a mini break with his wife and kids and a few of my other friends and they were in a national park in northern Uganda, middle of the day and top of the hut on top of the hill in the camp where they were staying and my friend Chris was inside the hut with his two friends playing just outside and lightning struck the hut and I'll skip the details which are pretty horrendous but ultimately despite the best efforts of his wife and our friends who were there Chris died on the way to hospital and his five-year-old daughter a number of days later still couldn't see kind of burnt or blinded by the flash and we weren't really sure whether it was temporary or permanent but thankfully recently she's just regained her sight but anyway the whole thing was just devastating it's totally crazy and it just sort of really rocked what's going on here in in our whole community and for the family and for everyone really who went through the trauma of it all especially those who were there Chris was only 33 two very young children as you'd imagine it brings all sorts of things up and a lot of them very personal and, and sensitive and and I'll stick clear of a lot of things that are going on in my head but given the running theme of this podcast so far has been hovering on the edge of oversharing and weaving in what's going on in my own life I feel like I couldn't not mention it at all I am going to try and talk a little bit on some of the things that have come up for me this incident is just such a powerful reminder that we're not here forever and I've lost people before but just the way this happened and the jarring nature of it where Chris was in his life it feels very relatable and one one moment Christmas there and hanging out at the camp with his kids and then he wasn't just sort of really underscores that I better make the most of the time that I've got and, we, and I live so much of my life as if we've got endless days I mean would it, would we really spend two hours on Facebook if we thought there was a chance it was it was our last day I was sat with my kid a few days ago he wakes up on a typical day at about 5am and I basically hang out with him until 8am when the rest of the world gets going. And the day in question is about 7.30 and my mind had already moved on and what I was going to do for the day. I was thinking about my frustrations with the Ugandan Revenue Authority, I think it was, who are the bane of my life and I don't know how to deal with. <laughs> and I was getting a bit impatient and then Chris to jump to mind as as these things do and what would Chris give now for 30 minutes with his kids? If I died yesterday and had the chance to live this morning, how much would I savor this moment? And just, it was an instant reframing and I just had the most amazing morning leaning into every moment and how grateful for my wife, my family, all my wonderful people in, in my life for the opportunity to do the things I do and live the life I live. And And that's, I think, a really good way to live and I want to remember that bringing a lot more gratitude into my life the other thing I suppose that relates to this podcast and realization of how impermanent we are is that of unfinished business and if I was about to die and I had the opportunity to reflect what would be the thing that I regretted most not doing what would I have liked to have achieved that I haven't and apart from the obvious family and, and personal side of things, the, the thing that screamed out from the rooftop was action on climate change, on conservation and my contribution towards building a livable, healthy future for my son and, of course, everything and every, everyone. My influence with regards to climate change so far for the majority, majority of my life has been as an emitter. 
and more recently making small things happen to bring down my emissions or make some small impact but I intend to go way way beyond minimizing my own negative impact I'm going to devote a significant part of my life and professional career on making I hope massive positive change and hopefully that dwarfs personal negative impact to date and and certainly dwarfs any negative impact that I have from here forwards while I'm also trying to bring that down so having this terrible thing happen I suppose has just helped with even greater clarity and a greater sense of urgency what it is I need to be doing and where it is I need to be working Another thing I thought is, is this the first of many friends of people I care about that are going to die from weather-related incidents? You know, this this heart-wrenching, family-wrecking incident, is that what's coming millions of times over? Oh my God, it just feels even more real. The the stats, I guess, start to become more human when you, when you go through this sort of thing. And another thing, and I know this was just a freak accident, I recognize that, but a thought hit me. We're now living in essentially one degree warmer world. The weather's already been heavily disrupted. Storms are more powerful. Seasons are all over the place. It's still rainy season in Uganda. It's six weeks, almost two months late. It's mid-June. It's supposed to be dry season months ago, but we're getting regular massive thunderstorms. And the question then, given the weather is already disrupted, would lightning have struck that exact hill? in early June with the power it did if it wasn't for climate change and disrupted weather. It's Chris, the first person I know that died because of climate change. And I know it's really hard to make a connection and thunderstorms have always happened. So it's impossible to say, but it is possible to say that the weather is definitely disrupted. But this is the uncertainty and the disconnect I'm talking about. If I, if there was a clear connection, can you imagine how angry and mobilized and engaged everyone would be in this community if there was a direct connection? <sighs> anyway, so who knows? And we never will. But I mean, it, I didn't even think of that until like three or four days afterwards. I have a final thing to say about this, and it's about community. And I think this is really important. As this devastating incident happened and as the aftermath unfolded afterwards, family, friends and the wider community, they rallied around each other and they were there for the people who need it and when they needed it. You you can't face these things alone, but together with friends and family and the wider community doing everything they can, you kind of get through the day. And I think the power of community is an important thing to remember moving forward. It's slid into a lesser valued part of our modern day society society but i think that should change i think communities have the power to drive change and to be a very meaningful part of the solution but they also have a critical role to play when the going gets tough as this incident is like just underscored for me and when things do start heating up we're going to need those communities around us and i saw through this tragedy and through my immediate community some of the very best parts of humanity so building these communities both for solutions and for social support is a critical part of our future before i launch into the core content of this episode i'm going to tackle a few questions and discussion points raised by people in response to previous episodes so firstly the question 
came up of who am I addressing the podcast series on engaging the masses to and what am I trying to achieve by doing it? Very simply, I'm addressing the series of podcasts to anyone who cares about sustainability who'd like to see more people engage. But I'm especially addressing it to anyone who has particular work or ideas or projects or behaviors or research that they'd like more people to engage with. The series, I suppose, is meant as a toolbox where the strategies I'm discussing are the tools to engage the masses. And you take the tool you need for a given job and use it to get your work done. And not every strategy is going to be relevant to everyone, nor do you have to actually agree with it all. And so take what resonates with you, the useful parts, and ditch the rest. And what am I hoping to achieve? I hope that the series of episodes end up having some positive impact by ultimately helping everyone else's wonderful work thrive. And my impact, at least when it comes to this series of episodes, is fueling everyone else's fires. (laughs) We're in this together. I'm, I'm happy to be supporting, and I hope that what I'm learning is useful to other people. Next point. A few people have discussed or sent questions around a similar topic and they go something like this. What about before my idea is well-defined? How to use the series if you don't have one burning passion project idea? You know, I have lots of things I'd like to change. How do do I prioritize them? Or how can I organize my thoughts and do it? Do you think it's better to choose one idea and focus on just that? Or is it a bit of work on lots of things is better? (laughs) And my response to that would be, Clearly, a well-defined vision is helpful for acting with purpose, but there's really no need for an idea to be your one true passion that you're going to devote the rest of your life to for the topics to be useful. So take the toolbox analogy again. Yes, of course, if you have a single passion project and you're super clear on what you're trying to build or achieve, it becomes obvious what you should use these tools for. But if you're a handyman or a handywoman, of course, and jumping from job to job, your toolbox can still be super useful in nudging each of those different jobs along too. You might be juggling 50 different things in your life of which sustainability is just one small part. So maybe just dip into some of these strategies for engaging a few folks with one small thing. Or maybe you're an expert and you already have a pretty comprehensive toolbox, better than any toolbox that I'm creating. And you know most of what I'm saying already, but a few points framed slightly differently add some value to your own toolbox for engaging the masses. So all of that is okay and none of it stops you using some of those strategy that resonates with you for influencing change. And the subject of prioritizing, which is the other aspect of that question, where each of us can have the most impact is a little bit outside the scope of this immediate series and it's a really interesting topic um, to tackle separately and something I battle with myself. So I'll likely come back to this after this bunch of episodes. I will say though that when it comes to choosing project, You don't have to be inch wide, mile deep. Some people's impact is destined to be spread widely over a number of areas, and that's okay. Okay, final question before I get onto the core part of the episodes. And I'm just going to quote it, so start quote. You talk a lot about value, putting sustainability in terms that matter most to the stakeholders you're trying to engage, like the example you gave with financial saving from installing a water filter. I agree and understand the basis for this, but doesn't it? dilute the message and reduce the credibility. If we simplify sustainability just to people's current values, we're basically saying sustainability in itself is not important enough for change. And it seems to me that the strategy is great for short-term wins, but doesn't change the culture or beliefs. Ultimately, if we're going to succeed, this sustainability shift is going to have to be a cultural one. So are we undermining our efforts by taking short-term value-driven approach? (laughs) That's the end of the quite a long question so it's a proper juicy one as well and i love it and and actually 
in trying to answer it, it's helped me clarify my thoughts on it as well. So exploring any good question helps clarity. So I love that aspect. So here's what I'm going to say to that. Firstly, I'm emphasizing value, but value as I'm intending it to be used is very broad term and includes all the higher ethical drives too. My examples today have not really illustrated this very well, and that's a flaw in what I've done, but it, it's a really important point. Things like contributing towards making the world a better place, things like conserving things beyond that which immediately benefits us, having a legacy you're proud of, knowing what the right thing to do is and having the courage to do it, all of that to the right person is value. So when I say focus on value, keep in mind value can mean a hundred different things. And that's really important. Thanks for bringing that to life. Second thing, there's a significant portion of the population that won't see those higher ethical moral arguments as sufficient value to act. So we can sit on our moral high horse and say they should value this enough to act. It's the right thing to do, but it's not very helpful, you know, either for getting things done or for changing the culture. So what I'm suggesting is we get the ball rolling however we can using whatever value we can, then we use this rolling ball to bring to life all the other value that may not have been sufficient motivation to get things going. The work of changing the culture really begins once the project gets going and continues long after the project is finished. So let me illustrate this with an example. So if you're trying to change the culture of a company to have a sustainability at its core, You can't just send an email out, FYI, culture's changed, company wants to prove its image, we're now sustainable, have a nice day. (laughs) You're gonna need some initiatives for people to rally around. And even better, if there are some personal human stories of people that staff can relate to, that they can rally around as well. Let's say a boss with little interest in sustainability signs off on a sustainable leaning project because you've shown it has potential to have financial value. As that project's rolled out, do your best, of course, to deliver the financial value you promised. But while you do, keep drawing and highlighting the other values, happier staff, healthy working environment, staff who are now proud to be a part of the company, staff who feel a greater sense of connection to the company, environmental and maybe even biodiversity benefits, a more emotionally connected customer base, whatever they are, those higher ethical values that really contribute towards changing the culture, shine a light on them. Your boss, she gets what she asked for, but she also got unexpectedly all sorts of other powerful, emotive and holistic benefits too that she wasn't expecting. Maybe you're even solving other problems for her that she had no idea that were connected. Help her see and understand those things make the connection and help her take some pride in it. Even better if she feels a sense of ownership over those things. And if you do all that, with that rolling ball, I think you made a real meaningful impact on your boss's attitude towards sustainability. And you can, of course, go beyond your manager and use that project to open the door to broader staff involvement as well, changing the culture of the broader staff to show that the company cares about them, invite them to share other sustainability ideas, illustrate that ordinary staff members like them can be involved and have a voice that you're willing to listen to. Then you're really getting to the juicy part of changing the company culture. So in summary, use whatever value you want to get the ball going on a project. But once it's rolling, use that ball to showcase and inspire the power of sustainability. The ball is a central part of changing the culture.
So thanks for the thoughts and the questions, everyone. Danielle, Dan, Tim, and others who have emailed. It's really awesome to get that interaction. You're helping me clarify my thoughts too, which I love. I'm always happy to hear more from anyone who's interested enough to share me. Um, so drop me an email at sam at climatechangeunfolding.com or find me on Twitter at Sam James Ward. I'm not sure if that was an introduction or a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> Let me get onto the core content of this episode. This is Engaging the Masses, part four, creating good stories. The human brain thinks in stories. We don't just think in stories, we remember in stories, and we turn just about everything we experience into a story. Sometimes we even adjust or omit facts to make stories fit. It's only relatively recently in human history where we've had mediums like films or internet or even books to remember good dialogue without storytelling face to face and prior to that if humans wanted to pass wisdom down they'd do it with stories and fables legends even in a digital age we're still at it we teach important ideas to our children through fairy tales with films and storybooks religious texts are full of stories stories are used in business and sales and marketing and in the media and we connect and we engage and we're moved to tears, to laughter, to anger, to sympathy and to action by stories. And science has confirmed what basically is intuitively obvious that humans are hardwired to engage with stories. The science on storytelling says they lead to better understanding, better comprehension, trust, receptivity, engagement. And neuroscience has distinguished between good and bad stories. Bad stories are monolithic, long streams of words like your stereotypical word-heavy PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and good stories don't just use words to communicate, they use language to bring to life emotion. They paint pictures in our minds, they make the visual part of our brain fire up. It's intuitive, it, it makes sense though, right? If we talk about delicious food, our favourite food, our mouths start to water. If we talk about sex, <laughs> then the heart starts racing, maybe other physical responses too, especially with a really good story. <laughs> And the same goes for fear, anger, or basically all the core human drives and emotions. In short, good stories make the audience see, feel, hear, taste your story. A highly engaged listener in a very real way lives your story. So if we accept that basic premise of what I've summarized there, then it becomes pretty obvious that using stories in bringing things to life has a significant part to play in this topic of engaging the masses. And this episode is all about that. It's about creating powerful narratives that can be crafted around your work that will dramatically increase people's engagement. But before I go any further, I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page about exactly what I mean by the word story. I'm saying story, but I'm a little afraid that that word has a bit of a narrow meaning for what I'm intending. It's like it pigeonholes the idea. When I say story, don't just think once upon a time, we all lived happily ever after, that sort of story. I also want you to include narratives and dialogues too that will more comprehensively capture the sort of meaning that I'm talking about. Most people are willing to accept the power of stories to engage. The key thing here really is understanding how to connect storytelling or the narratives with your work or your idea. So I'm going to start with an example. I think examples are really powerful here to bring this concept to life and see the connection. 16-year-old girl with Asperger's made a sign, skipped school and sat down on her own outside the might of a Swedish parliament to stand up for something she believed in. She didn't have any kind of reputation or power, but she had the courage and the boldness to do it anyway. That, in a sentence or two, is Greta Thunberg's 
founding story, if you like, Greta's narrative. It was a narrative engaging enough that it exploded into a global movement. Millions of kids have skipped school in solidarity on behalf of the same cause. And she's at the forefront of a social movement that's sweeping the globe. And she's met with most or many of the world's presidents and speaks to a global platform. She has she has, has 700,000 Twitter followers. People engaged big time. But why was the narrative so engaging? Can it be replicated for our own ideas? And here are some of my thoughts on why it was so magically engaging for the masses. Simplicity. It's a beautifully simple story, immediately graspable. I just told it in two sentences. It's a human story. Our minds connect with, engage with humans and humanity. All good stories need a relatable character with a personality where we can see humanity. And we've definitely got that with Greta. So it pulls on the heartstrings. Emotion, passion, feelings, a far greater motivation than most people realize. We think we're cold, logical creatures, but <laughs> decades of research and real-world examples show the opposite. And in Greta's example, she's young, she's vulnerable, she wields no power. But she has the courage and the boldness and enough conviction to sit there anyway and stand up for what she believes. And that's engaging and it's heartwarming. So it pulls on her heartstrings. Empowering. So Greta's story makes people feel like anyone and everyone can make a difference because of her origins and where she came from. She was just a 16-year-old girl with nothing behind her. It has People versus power, David versus Goliath narrative. People want to see everyday heroes succeed against the powerful establishment, against the big evil corporate and governments. That's a very engaging dialogue. It sucks people in. The initial narrative that grabs people doesn't tell you the whole story. It doesn't tell you everything Greta has to say in it, and it doesn't need to. In fact, it shouldn't. It's engaging enough to inspire people to dig a bit deeper, to find her on YouTube or watch one of her speeches on social media. Millions of people are engaged, listen to all of her talks and ultimately started acting themselves. So it's like a teaser that brings people in. And then her message, ultimately, when people do dig deeper, has real power. She's got moving speeches. She cuts so beautifully and unashamedly to the chase. She calls bullshit on all sorts of things and... And on all sorts of people, we'd never have the courage to do. And she does it in front of some of the world's most powerful people. All of that adds to her story and it fuels the fire of her engagement further. Another thing is a picture that paints a thousand words. Alongside the verbal narrative is the iconic supporting visuals, which brings it to life further. There's a very simple image of her. She looks very timid, you know, 16. She looks young with a single sign sat in front of the iconic might of the country's parliament. And then later images of millions of people around the world and people from all over the world. You know, it really adds to her narrative. It gives depth to the story. And another thing I think that I would like to draw on is the right place in the right time. She came at the right time in history movements and, and frustrations are kind of coming to a head a little bit and the world was ready for her when it comes to relating that last point particularly to our own ideas is the question we need to ask is what is the world ready for but is not yet hearing to wrap that all together then a sustainable world needs more stories like Greta Thunberg's story and I'm suggesting we need to look and understand what makes stories like hers so engaging and we use that understanding to craft our own narratives around the messages or ideas you want people to engage with.
I'm going to hit some other examples, but first I wanted to look at the classic narrative of a story, and it helps us understand the construct of a good story and, uh, and guide our own narratives. It's the basic script of pretty much every Hollywood film ever made, and it goes something like this. First, they introduce the character, make people interested and connected to that character, help people relate to them. Second, they introduce a goal backed by clear, understandable motive. The, the character hasn't yet reached that goal and is blocked by also a number of obstacles that likely have some kind of risk or consequence of failure. And third, the hero of the story struggles to meet the goals, encounters highs and lows, goes through ups and downs, and other characters and resources are encountered which aid in overcoming the obstacles and some kind of personal transformation happens. And fourth, the obstacle is overcome and the goals are reached and happy vibes and a new normal is established, which remains in status until a new incident prompts a new goal, which in Hollywood, at least, normally means a sequel. <laughs> and there's a less common but still pretty classic tragic version of this model where the final stage is never met. There's always some sort of personal growth or emotive aspect. The model's replicated a thousand times over it still makes millions of dollars each time we can't help but engage and the good news is that this model is not reserved for hollywood only there's a story for every idea some kind of goal struggle obstacles allies emotion and triumph or tragedy even on a really small scale part of the genius of the classical narrative structure is that it's incredibly flexible within its broader constraints just think of the variety of stories in the world. How many books and films have been made? We've been telling them for millennia and we're not going to run out anytime soon. So as we consider engaging the masses with our idea, our struggle or our challenge or our task is to craft a narrative that's authentic and engaging and shows some form of the hero's journey. And without it, people either just skip over it onto the next sort of more engaging thing in their life or they have to work to create a story around the idea to fill the gaps we run the risk if we leave them to it that that narrative is not the intended narrative and it's not a supportive narrative so we get our story right and they'll just do what their brains are hardwired to do and they'll engage if we tell a good story our audience shares our victories and our tragedies Examples are just wonderful for bringing these ideas to life and helping people see how stories can be used in a powerful way. So I'm going to hit you with another, and this time from the world of business. So I saw a video made by a company called Intrepid Travel of the first female East African truck driver. And this is a great example of building a powerful, emotive, personal human story around an idea. And the idea is women's empowerment, promoting gender equality in a male-dominated environment. And the video... Uh, has Becky as the central character going through her struggles, self-doubt, no shortage of emotion in the video and other people are trying to force her down and it shows her triumphing over those challenges. It's not a negative message focusing on the 99% male-dominated field. It's an inspiring role model story. Becky's story shows women what's possible. They use a range of music and beautiful shots to support the mood and the motion through the video, which adds to the power of it as well, um, with good videography skills, I suppose. And so if this topic interests you and you want to see how a video could be used as a tool to tell human personal stories around a concept, I'll leave a link in the show notes on climatechangeunfolding.com slash episode 14. Or you just Google the name of the video on YouTube. It's called... They call her Mama Overland, East Africa's first overland truck driver. <laughs> End quote. It's a catchy title. <laughs> um, but check it out. It's really powerful. 
um, and a great example of crafting a story around something that they want people to engage with. I'll give you another example and this time it's a personal one and it's to do with business and sales. And it's not all that revolutionary but I wanted to include it because it shows just how tiny a scale and how simple it is to weave a narrative into any small things that we do and how it makes things much more engaging and relatable. So Cantonal is one of the businesses I run and we have a chance sometimes to talk to groups of people as they arrive in the region about potential activities, which is our products, and things that they might be interested in doing while they're staying in the area. And if there's a decent group and I do the talk really well, I can bring in as much as $2,000 for the company, which is pretty epic for a few minutes' work. But, it, but if I do it badly, we make nothing. <laughs> so as you'd imagine, I have a pretty strong preference for getting it as right as I can. <laughs> so I was speaking to 20 British university students just a couple of days ago who were just a few days into a two-week trip. And I need to begin my talk with a bit of context of who I am. It's hard to talk about yourself and come across in a sincere and authentic way. So I, I replaced my usual spiel with a bit of my background with a very brief narrative that was relatable and, and true, by the way. <laughs> you know, and I, I said something along these lines. Hey guys, welcome to Uganda. I'm Sam. I came here first as a student on a two-week trip from the UK. <laughs> I fell in love with this river. It's magical. The place, the people, the lifestyle, everything about it just sucked me in. I extended my return ticket and here I am 15 years later talking to you guys. So watch out, this place will get you. <laughs> All right, so I just want to keep this example really, really short. So I'll cut it there. I carried on to weave a bit more narrative around all the products um, and the reasons they might enjoy them in a, in a kind of story form. And engagement was really high and in part, I think, because I started things off with a personal narrative that was very relatable. They're just a couple of days into quite a powerful, life-changing experience. And it felt very relatable, me telling a story about me first coming to Uganda on a very similar life situation to what they are right now and how it really changed my life. And so I think that's relatable. It's a narrative and it's very easy to absorb. So the main point that I wanted to make with that example is that narratives don't need to be novels or Hollywood blockbusters. They don't need to be elaborate. They, they can be weaved into almost any conversation in, in almost any circumstances. And that narrative that I just mentioned was only two sentences long. With your ideas, your conversation, I think sharing your story in the right way has power. So don't, don't be shy to show the human face behind the work, what inspires you, what moved you to engage with the idea I'd say that'd be especially powerful if you can find narratives that relate closely to your audience as well. Nobody is moved by a fact alone. I want to talk about bringing the facts to life. If someone is moved by it, it means they've converted the fact into what it really means in the real world. They've built a narrative around it. But we can't rely on people to do that in the way that we want. Most people just let facts slide past them in a very superficial way they don't absorb what they really mean like water over a duck's back while i was researching this episode i came across a paper that said we're 22 times more likely to remember a story than a fact <laughs> that's amazing it also resonates with me as true in my own experience i struggle to remember flat unengaging facts but when a story is wrapped around them a visual story especially they'll stick years later 
Actually, as a side note on this, shortly after university, I came across some memory techniques, initially from a Darren Brown book, but then I looked into others that it's all about allowing people to memorize huge lists or stacks of cards or whatever, and found it fascinating. They also pretty much all tap into creating visual or story narratives around the list that they're remembering. A side note on my side, on my side note, which I found to be pretty mind-blowing failing of the education system that I went through, by the way, 20-odd years of education finishing with a master's where learning things absolutely central to the curriculum, we didn't once discuss readily available and fantastic techniques for helping remember things. Oh my God, if someone had at some point spent 30 minutes on memory techniques, it could have slashed thousands of wasted hours. Straight up ridiculous. Why don't we teach this in school, people? Anyways, back on topic. What I'm trying to say is if we want to engage people with a fact, we need to bring it to life. We need to tell stories about it, create a narrative that's engaging, shocking, inspiring, emotive, whatever. This same principle goes beyond facts. It's also true for technical terms, things like when it comes to climate change, things like ecosystem collapse. You know, it sounds bad and people get some general uneasy feeling, but do they really grasp the impacts of what that means for them, for them personally? Are they really bringing to life all of the things that it means? What about phrases like four degrees of warming? Now, if you spent a couple of decades studying what that means, that's a seriously scary term. But if you only vaguely know, or even if you um, do know, you don't know the, the real details, does it really ca- carry the same power? Same goes for big numbers. We need to bring those big numbers to life. We just can't grasp numbers that are so big that they're not within our immediate understanding if you want numbers to have impact think of what's more relatable to bring it into a measure that people can comprehend you know 8 million tons of plastic is dumped in the ocean each year but what does that even mean you know it sounds like a lot sure but are people really grasping the magnitude of what it is how big is that pile if you heaped it outside their house (laughs) when people hear also about climate change impacts they also need to bring those to life and they're imagining other People in far-off lands and far-off future, distant, you know, sounds slightly uneasy and scary, but it doesn't really craft a narrative that makes it personable, more relatable and localized. So stories can help. And finally, can we bring to life an inspiring future with narratives? Can people see clearly what a beautiful place the world would be if we did radically change our way of living to be more sustainable? I'm not sure they can. I'm not sure most people can. I think I have to work pretty hard to create a narrative. But there are amazing things wrapped into that. Narratives of rewilding nature in all its magical complexity, recovering and flourishing. Human stories of supportive local communities where we have meaningful connections to our immediate neighbors, where we eat healthy, locally grown, fresh food that supports us living long happy vibrant lives and dialogues of integrating trees and the natural world into our towns and our cities and our our living spaces what about a world where happiness is valued higher than gdp and profit that to me sounds like a story worth telling the final thing i want to say about stories is about the stories we tell ourselves whether we're aware of them or not We all have stories or internal dialogues that ultimately weave together to form our identity and our outlook on the world. And together, that web of stories dramatically affects our actions as well. Take, for example, a simple narrative that someone might have. Let's say money is all the power in this world and people will keep acting selfishly and humans are never going to change. So what's the point in trying? And then 
<laughs> flip it around and another more hopeful narrative. Renewables expanding at a rapid rate, huge social movements sweeping the globe, demanding action. Businesses around the world are engaging at unprecedented levels to change our economies. And governments are also starting to take drastic actions. Costa Rica and Denmark are in a race to become the, the world's first carbon neutral country. Other nations are setting targets and engaging too. And big change feels like it's just around the corner. And change is actually happening now. And I, and I want to be a part of it. So two very different narratives about current state of affairs. And you can take whatever you want from either, but you imagine how those different stories affect those people's actions. And what's your narrative on where we're at? And more importantly, how does your narrative affect your actions day to day? And if we turn that even more internal, what narratives do we hold about ourselves and ourselves? And if someone asks you to describe yourself in a few sentences, what do you say? How... What are your beliefs and what do you stand for? What do you do? And in a simplistic sense, that's your, your own impression of your own identity. And, and those stories you tell about yourself, they can change. And they're amazingly fluid, actually. People change all the time. They're influenced by those around them, what they hear, what they see and do. And you can even purposefully rewrite these internal narratives just by challenging your destructive attitudes and cultivating your positive ones. But you've got to ask a question of what's there in the first place to have a, a chance at doing that. It sounds really esoteric and philosophical, but it's really important because when something like sustainability becomes part of a person's identity, they're willing to go to extraordinary lengths to uphold it. Tedium, hurdles, obstacles, frustrations, costs, inconveniences, much easier to overcome when people see themselves on a classic hero's journey that involves sustainability in some way. These personal narratives matter. To summarize then, narratives engage people like almost nothing else has the power to do. And when people hear a good story, they live it with the storyteller and with the hero of the story. And when our hero comes through and emerges from the story triumphant, changed from the person they were at the start of the tale, we have in some way been changed too. We can and we should take charge of the narratives around our ideas and we tell great stories that grab people's hearts those people will carry those stories around with them and those stories ultimately inspire action. Thanks very much for listening. Very grateful that you're sharing this journey with me all the way to the end of a monster episode. <laughs> According to Google, by the way, there are 29 million podcast episodes online. <laughs> so God knows how you found this one, but I'm happy that you did. I feel like there are people out there that might get some kind of benefit from these episodes that would be keen to listen but haven't found it yet in that sea of 29 million others. So if you can, super grateful. If you can tell people in whatever way you feel is best, I'd appreciate that. I'd love for this series to really maximize its impact by being heard by as many people as possible. That makes me very happy. Feedback, thoughts, questions, criticism, I'm all game. Sam at climatechangeunfolding.com or on Twitter, Sam James Ward. I'll be back. Next episode for more on this topic of engaging the masses. This is Sam Ward, Climate Change Unfolding. See you next time.